Amen. Amen. How is everybody? It's good to be in the house with the Lord. We've got another full house. Amen. If you will turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. And I want to welcome our visitors. We have a few uh, fresh faces here this morning with us. We're th- glad that you came to worship with us. We have some uh, some old friends, some familiar faces that are back. Debbie, God bless you guys. Glad you guys are here with us again. Um, today is the first Sunday of the month, and the tradition here at Sovereign Grace is that we always worship at the Lord's table. So at the end of our, our service time, we will close our worship by uh, coming to the Lord's table together in communion. And then following that, we will have our uh, fellowship meal. And so visitors, you are welcome to stay. There's always plenty of food. Matthew chapter 13, we're continuing in this wonderful gospel and looking at Jesus's parables. Matthew chapter 13, if you're able to stand, let's let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 47. Again, these are the words of our Lord Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hmm. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our Father God, we, we pause at the reading of your word. These are the words of your son, Jesus Christ, his parable, his teaching to us about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he is giving us an image here of the final days when all will come before your throne of judgment, and he is showing us what the kingdom is like in that moment. All that your son has done for us on the cross leads to this final moment in time where the evil will be separated out from the good. Lord, we cannot do that. We, we have no idea how to effectively purge sin from our lives, how to purge sin from our world. But dear God, you do know how to do this. You know how to establish a kingdom, a kingdom of your heaven that you invite us to be a part of. And so God, I pray this morning that as we look at your word, that you would speak loudly to us, that you would reveal within us the truth that you wish for us to see the truth that your kingdom is pure and that there is no room for evil and wickedness, but that you cherish your beloved, you cherish those who are in the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who have been purged and cleaned of their sin. You you love us so much that in the end days, you will separate out the evil from the good. Help us, Lord, this morning to see the truth. Speak to our hearts where we are, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Have a seat. Many everyday tasks. If you think about this, think about everything that you have to do throughout a day. Just about everything we do throughout the day, responsibilities, a lot of things involve separation of things, doesn't it? 
We separate the white socks from the color socks when we do the laundry. Or we should. <laughs> Correct? <laughs> we separate the two-by-fours from the two-by-sixes when we're building something. Right, men? You don't want a two-by-four attached to a two-by-six that don't work. We even separate children when they don't get along. Separation. We, 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 a lot of the things that we do in our daily tasks involve organizing things and putting them in the places where they belong. And sometimes that involves weeding out those things that don't belong. Some of us in this room would be beneficial for us to go home after this sermon and go to our closets and our garages and separate out the things that don't belong there anymore. Separation, putting things where they belong, categories, everything has a place, especially in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is described in two different kinds of parables that we've been looking at in chapter 13. Either a parable is talking about the kingdom as present here and now, or the parable is talking about the kingdom as future, the final judgment. This particular parable is that second type of parable. It is the kingdom as future, the final judgment. The parable of the net here in verses 47 through 50, or more appropriately, I I like to call it the parable of the bad fish. That's really what's going on here. That's the focus of the teaching. It teaches us of the future and the final judgment of the kingdom of heaven as a time of separating the souls. There are two groups of souls discussed here. Parables of this kind are not spoken by Jesus to satisfy the curiosity of those who desire to know about the end times prophecy. It seems like in the churches, there are so many people, that's all they want to talk about. Let's talk about end times prophecy. Let's talk about the end times prophecy. Let's figure out what the end is so that we know what God is doing. And God has made it clear, no one knows the day or the hour or the time. Nothing wrong with looking at the end times because Jesus is even speaking about that here. Yet this parable is not taught for the intent of telling us about the end times. Something deeper here. Parables of this kind, what Jesus is saying here is a judgment parable. And the intention of Jesus here as he's speaking this this truth there, he's teaching here through a parable. He's teaching for the purpose, not of focusing on the end times per se, but in order to alter life in the present. He's talking about the kingdom future so that the kingdom present will alter a life now. That's why he's doing this. Jesus is not teaching a parable here as an end times prophecy workshop. He's teaching something for a bigger purpose, and that is to alter life Now, let's not forget that. The parables of Jesus are preaching. They are teaching, but they are meant to engage and to instruct. Yet these parables also demand some type of an interpretation. And this particular parable, just like two others in Matthew 13, Jesus actually goes further and describes exactly the meaning of the parable. That's a wonderful gift from our Savior. They point that this... This parable, all parables, 
point to something else. Parables hold up one reality to serve as a mirror of another reality, and that other reality is the kingdom of heaven. That is much different than our reality. Matter of fact, I would even go so much farther as to say it's more important even so today to understand the reality of the kingdom of heaven that is a more true reality than our present reality in the context of we are now in a Western cultured context where reality is no longer reality. Reality is now redefined as something that's not even true. These parables, even though they are using imagery to point to another reality, it's actually pointing to the only reality, and that's the kingdom of heaven that we cannot quite fully see. They hold up what Jesus is doing. He is establishing the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's one of the, that is probably the single common theme throughout all of Matthew's gospel is that Matthew is focusing on Jesus' teaching and the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is not a kingdom of this world. It is a kingdom of heaven that is established not with buildings and cities and, and wonderful lands. It is established in the hearts of sinners to transform them, to alter their life now for a future glorious end. Correct? Parables are a means to understanding this kingdom, and parables are these handles that we can grasp to understand and be a part of the kingdom. Because the kingdom of heaven can be a wild ride, can it? Sometimes you got to grab hold onto it. Otherwise, you're going to lose. It's going to slip out of your fingers. You're not going to quite get it. And that's what parables help us do here. Jesus told parables to confront people. It was his way to confront their lives, to change them, to alter who they were with the character of the kingdom of heaven and to invite them to participate in it and to live in accord with it. If you are here this morning and you are part of the kingdom, you understand what I'm talking about. There is a transformation of the character of the sinner that you cannot explain with human science and medical science and things like that. Even modern psychology can't really grasp what's going on in a transformed heart. Many of the judgment parables, and that's what this is, it is a parable of judgment. It speaks either of a harvest or a settling of accounts. And you're going to see a little bit of both here in this parable. Jesus, uh, Jesus' parables here about the final judgment or the final settling of accounts, they do not imply that one's future is determined as fate determines an outcome. I want us to, even in a reformed-minded church, I want you to listen to what I'm saying here, Okay. We are a reformed-minded church. I want you to hear the words I'm using. The parables of final judgment by Jesus do not imply that one's future is so determined as the idea of fate says that no matter what you do, your end is already written. If the intent of teaching in parables is to alter the lives of those who hear them, then one's eternal future is not as determined as some might think. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God preordains all things. Yet, even in that truth, there is a truth here that there is an intent to alter lives. People are not born 
with a destiny of eternal punishment, nor are people born with an eternal destiny of eternal life. God knows, God ordains, God predestines, but there is also somewhere in the biblical truth that lives do change. You see what we're saying? Both are true. There will be a harvest aspect here of the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes the imagery in these parables they is used of crops being gathered into barns. We saw that one earlier in chapter 13. Here in this parable, there is a harvest of fish. So here in this in this parable, instead of harvesting grain, harvesting crops, there is a harvest of fish. Now think about this. Once any type of harvest is gathered, a process of separation will occur. And that's the imagery here in this parable of the final judgment. If Jesus taught out of love for those who were hearing this parable, and actually those who are hearing it right now, Jesus' words are out of love for you. Then, If that's true, there is some element of change here that is possible for the sinner. There is some element of change that is possible for the unrighteous. And that's all of us, really. Let's take a look here at this parable of this final separation of the fish, this separation of of separating the bad fish out of the good fish. And then we're going to look at Jesus' explanation in verses 49 through 50. Look at verse 47. These are the words of our Savior. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. What does that look like? I mean, has anybody ever, ever fished with a net? You do? You have? I've never done that. I've seen it done. I've been in countries around the world where that is common. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm a fly fisherman. Okay. I, I like to get my fly rod out and go out to the rivers and have a good time. Just relaxing and peaceful. It's a wonderful experience. The kingdom of heaven here is described with imagery of the fishing trade. Rather than just looking for one fish on one hook on one line, there is a net here being described. Most in the crowds listening to this parable and even his inner 12 would have related to this in a personal level for sure, right? They, a lot of fishermen in Galilee casting a net was the common tool of the fishermen. Whatever the net trapped, the fishermen would haul in. Most people in Jewish Palestine depended on salted fish. They depended on wheat and barley. That was their diet. Fish products of all kinds, all kinds, were common in the daily diet of that local economy. The harvested fish from the Sea of Galilee would be dried and it would be salted, or it may even have been pickled for preservation. Fish had to be preserved, and this was part of the local economy there. Fishermen were central to this economy, and as a result, fishermen actually made a pretty good living. They, they were not necessarily in poverty. They weren't necessarily rich either, but they were probably a healthy middle class. Fishermen were central here, and, and so they were they had made a, a better living, far better than most of the poor who would work the lands and out of, throughout much of the Roman Empire and much of Palestine. If you were a, a laborer in the fields, you actually were worse off than the fishermen economically. The typical fisherman's net had a narrow end pulled by the boat and a wider end weighed down with lead to sink into the water. 
Now, this would be the type of net used by Peter and Andrew in Matthew chapter 4. Flip over here to Matthew chapter 4. Because the imagery of the net and of fishing is common throughout Jesus' teaching in his, in his ministry. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, when Jesus calls his first disciples, uh, we get the imagery of what fishermen do. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. A very familiar passage, a very familiar scene. Jesus calls Simon, Peter, and Andrew, who left their nets, to follow him. Yet the net that Jesus refers to here in Matthew 13, verse 47, in the parable, was not a typical fisherman's net. you got to understand this. The imagery in the parable is not of the typical fisherman's net. It's a much different net. It was a drag net, much larger than the typical fisherman's net, with the intended purpose of dredging the water to collect everything in its path. I mean, everything. Nothing would have escaped this dragnet. Nothing. That's the imagery of a dragnet. As Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John in Matthew 4 would cast the typical fisherman's net to make a good living, and they did, the net spoken of here in Matthew 13 in the parable is a much larger net, one that goes wide and deep. It's the imagery of the dragnet. It's God's judgment. That's what we're looking at here. Look here in verse 48 of Matthew 13. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. That's what you got to do when you're hauling in that much fish. You, you can't sell every fish. You've got to look for the best. And you want to protect the best by separating out the bad. Notice this. Now, I don't cite present-day evangelists much and great teachers much, but John MacArthur actually has a really good statement on this that describes this pretty well. He describes the somber reality of the movement of the kingdom of heaven toward final judgment. Here's what he says. The dragnet of God's judgment moves silently through the sea of mankind and draws all men to the shores of eternity for final separation to their ultimate destiny. I want to read that again. The dragnet of God's judgment moves silently, and it gathers the sea of mankind and draws all men to the shores of eternity. That's the imagery painted here. Believers, here's the separation. Believers to eternal life and unbelievers to eternal damnation. That's the ultimate destiny, one of the two. Believers to eternal life, unbelievers to eternal damnation. It's the only options we got. Verse 48 paints the image of the final sorting of souls. That's what we're looking at here. Just like the harvest of fish, the harvest of men and women is determined by the freshness versus the rottenness of their soul. I mean, that's just, that's just the biblical image. Is your soul rotten or is your soul fresh? 
That's the, that's, that's what determines the separation. Here the description is of the necessary work that fishermen had to do for their profit. They, when they caught, they had a catch like this, in order to make profit, they sat down on the shore and they separated out the bad from the good. While the dragnet catches everything, not everything is worthy of the market. That's the truth. And that's the imagery of the kingdom that Jesus has been painting all throughout chapter 13. Even in the sowing of the seed, not all seed will produce good fruit or even take root. It's the reality of the end. Not everything that is caught by the dragnet is worthy of the kingdom. The good and healthy and fresh fish are saved out of the pile and they're placed in containers for safekeeping for the market, protected. Yet the bad and the rotten fish are thrown away. And that's the definition here. A good fish is the obedient, faithful, and merciful soul. The bad fish, you could actually translate this word from the Greek as rotten, wicked, unworthy, rotten, putrid. That's the definition of the soul here being separated out. Now, I have done some fishing in Florida where there is a pier near where we stayed and, and where the catch of the day, when you bring it all in, you can separate out your, your catch. Uh, you actually, you can actually fillet your fish right there on the pier. You've ever been to places like that before you take it in? The undesirable parts of the fish are cast back into the ocean or tossed into the trash for disposal later. The desirable fish are preserved. The undesirable are disposed of. There are only two categories of fish here. Either a fish is good or a fish is bad. But the categories are not arbitrary. The categories are determined by the fishermen. The seasoned fisherman knows his business. There's a standard by which all fish are compared. It's not an arbitrary thing. The good fish are the faithful and the merciful and the obedient. That's the standard. The bad fish are the rotten, the evil, the wicked. That's the standard. The fish don't make their standards. The fishermen did. Okay? Verse 49, these next two verses, 49 and 50, actually define and describe what verses 48 and four, or 47 and 48 are. 49, so it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. If you make notes in your Bible, you can actually compare verse 49 with verse 39. Two different parables, but the same kind of discuss, uh, same kind of language. In verse 39, and Jesus is describing and defining uh, the parable of the weeds or the tares, he says, as he's describing in verse 39, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just like here in verse 49, the fishermen here in the parable, they are the angels, the messengers of God, who are cast at the close of the age to separate the evil from the righteous. Angels have a job to do at the end. They will be the ones who separate out the evil from the bad. But what standards are the angels using? Not their own arbitrary standards. They are using the standards of the Creator God the holy and righteous almighty God, 
who is sovereign over all things. And he knows the hearts of men better than we know ourselves, doesn't he? He knows our hearts, whether they are rotten or whether they are pure. They know He knows whether our soul is purified and fresh in Christ or our soul is rotten from sin and evil. That's the standard. And the messengers, the angels, they are the fishermen here. Angels will not pass judgment. Notice here, as the separation happens in verse 49, that's not the judgment happening. That's the, the separation of the, of the, uh, of the judged. It's the separation of the judged. Only Jesus the Son will pass judgment. Angels are just called to separate. The spiritual net of the kingdom of heaven, this drag net, it drags the souls of the world together up until this point. Nothing will escape the dragnet. And that's the lie of the devil. For the arrogant and prideful, self-serving person, I will determine my own destiny. Okay. You'll be separated out at the end. The one who, the, the one who is caught up in this dragon, all who are caught up in this dragnet, no one is free from it. So in verse 50, when we look here in verse 50, as, as the angels are separating out the evil from the righteous, verse 50, and once they separate out the evil, they will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, friends, I'm sorry. Today we're having a fellowship meal, and I know this kind of a text is going to really just spoil your appetite and your fellowship spirit. <laughs> but we got to understand here, the words of Jesus are loving. The words of Jesus are loving here. He's pointing out the reality. It's important to note that Jesus does not emphasize the reward of the righteous in these parables. That's not the point of the parable. He's not emphasizing the reward, even though there is a reward for the righteous. Eternal life. Remember that these parables of judgment are intended to alter life in the present. That's why he was speaking these parables to the crowds. That's why Jesus preached the way he did. That's why he spoke the way he did. His, his intent was to alter lives. This is where, again, we as reform-minded thinking people must also include the truth that in Scripture there is both the predestined idea of the elect of God and the culpable will of the sinner. If you are culpable, that means that you are, you are held accountable. If your will... And that's really the only free will that anyone has. The only free will that we have is that of rejecting our Lord, which doesn't get you very far. We don't choose by our own sinful will to be saved. No one in this net chooses to come up in the net. The net grabs it all, the righteous and the unrighteous. That's right, right there shows you there is no choice in your salvation. But God transforms the life through the blood of His Son. He transforms the will to be His will. If it was our will, we would run away from the net. 
But even that is futile. No one will escape the net. Although the redeemed are known by God the Father, even though the elect are known by God the Father, His knowledge is far beyond ours. We limit the mind of God when we say that only a certain number of His elect are determined. We limit the mind of our Father in heaven when we say that the number of the elect are determined. There's an idea of the numberless elect that is true and I think very biblical. This parable speaks of the destined elect chosen by God and the rejected evil, those rejected by God. Only God will choose the fish to keep or to toss. This occurs when the harvest of fish are collected, just like when the harvest of wheat is gathered. Yet notice in verse 50 that the point of the parable is the fiery furnace for the evil and the wicked. That's the point of the parable. Verse 50 does not imply that the eternal damnation of evil is an annihilation like burning to ash or smoke. Some have taken this verse and the idea of the fiery furnace as God's grace for the evil soul to annihilate their existence as a final act of grace. That is not what Jesus is teaching here. Notice here in verse 50. When these evil are separated from the good, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That doesn't sound like annihilation of your existence to me. This one verse in verse, this one phrase in verse 50, it directly states that the place of eternal judgment will be painful. Jesus taught that hell would involve an eternal and a conscious punishment. Those there in eternal damnation will be conscious and aware of every pain and suffering and torment for eternity. Any argument against the idea of God's grace here resulting in the annihilation of the damned is just not here. Has anyone ever heard that argument? That God is so loving and graceful that even in the final judgment, His final act of mercy is to annihilate the existence of the, of the sinful so that they don't suffer anymore. That's not biblical. Eternal damnation, eternal judgment is God's righteous judgment. Just like His judgment of eternal life is a righteous and graceful judgment. We see this all throughout Scripture. Matthew 25, verse 46, is even more clear where the lots of the two groups at the throne of judgment are. There's a contrast of phrases in Matthew 25, verse 46. Jesus says, And those will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There is There are two phrases here in contrast. Eternal life, and eternal judgment. Both are eternal. Never ending. Always. It's hard for us to even understand the concept of eternity. It is a conscious existence that is ongoing, yet eternity has also been described as an ever-present now. That's beyond my thinking, right? 
Just as the reward of life in the kingdom of heaven is eternal, so is this punishment of death in the kingdom eternal. Mark, if you're taking notes, you can jot these down. We'll give you four other passages of scripture where Jesus is speaking about this. In Mark chapter 9, verse 48, he says, where their worm does not die and the fire that is not quenched. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That fire never goes out. Eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The sinful soul that is wicked and evil and rotten will go right there where Satan and his devils will be for eternal punishment and suffering. Matthew 25, verse 46, as I just read, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Matthew 8, 12, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. That context there, when we looked at Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is talking, he's, he's using the phrase sons of the kingdom as a sarcasm to the Pharisees. The sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the recurring theme in Jesus' ministry about eternal reward and eternal punishment is that the judgment that determines the outcome, the judgment that determines the eternal outcome is based solely on one thing, faith. The existence of faith in Christ or the lack thereof. That's it. That's the factor. And God's sovereignty but no, notice that God the Father in Scripture is not the one passing judgment. He gives that job to His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you have faith in me? Come, enter your eternal reward. You? I don't even know who you are. Go out into eternal damnation and judgment. Go with the devil and his angels to an eternal fiery flame. That's the words of our Savior. Those who embrace with pure faith that Jesus accomplished all that is necessary for salvation and redemption from sin are promised eternal reward. The good fish are protected and put into a safe container away from the bad fish. Those who reject any hope in faith Anyone who rejects that Jesus accomplished all that is necessary for the redemption from sin remain in their sinful state and are promised eternal punishment. Faith is the key. It's the center of this. With God's grace determining that. Judgment results in either reward or punishment. Jesus' parables are very clear on this. He, he, there is no gray area. Yet as Jesus intends, remember, the purpose of the parables is to alter life in the present. His words in this parable, I think, have the purpose of calling the righteous to reject all evil manners. Because even those of us who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, let's be honest, we are living in a sinful fallen world still, aren't we? Even we who are redeemed in the blood of Christ we know that they, we are struggling with our own eter internal, internal sins. Yet we have a Savior to depend upon 
a Savior who loves us and is there to embrace us and to carry our burdens with us until the final end. The nature of the kingdom of heaven is that the righteous in Christ must endure living with the pollution of evil in this earthly state. And the point of walking with Christ in this present moment is to avoid evil and to avoid the rotten fish lest we get tossed away with them. Can a redeemed soul become rotten? That's another sermon altogether. We won't get into that today. (laughs) But that's a question, isn't it? The point of this parable is that the angels will separate the good from the bad for the purpose of judgment by Jesus the Son, a place of fiery torment, a place of weeping, a place where the damned and the demonic will gnash each other with teeth is a place that the righteous avoid. I mean, I... Actually, in, the, in research and praying through this sermon, I came up with about 20 pages of examples of literature in the Christian faith that, that paints the agony of eternal gnashing and weeping. That really just humbles you when you read it. But I didn't want, I mean, I need to wrap things up. We could be here for another two hours just looking at the history of Christian thought on this. But think about a place of eternal weeping and a place of gnashing. Can you imagine being in a place forever to where the demons and the damned, the unrighteous, the rotten, the evil, you're gnashing and biting each other for eternity while also being consumed by an eternal flame that never goes out, that never consumes, but tortures. Imagine that. I think that's why Jesus speaks these parables. It's so that those who are listening will hear the truth of the kingdom of heaven and souls will be altered. The righteous will be encouraged. Yet the evil and the rotten will be warned. The words of Jesus here are both comfort to the righteous that the evil they endure now will be separated and cast away in the end. Are you enduring evil right now? Are you being tortured right now? This is words of hope here for you. (laughs) That in the end, if you are in Christ, the evil that tortures you and torments you will be separated from the righteous and it will be tossed away and go into an eternal fiery flame that will always torture it eternally. And the words are also warning to any evil intention that judgment is real and that eternal punishment is conscious and is forever. You know what I mean when I say is conscious? You're going to be aware of every pain and every agony. It's not going to be a numb, it's not going to be a numbing experience. It's going to be an eternal pain and torture. There is no soul sleep in in the eternal state of the kingdom of heaven. You know what that means? You ever heard that teaching? That at death we go to sleep, which is the language of Scripture, yet to think that we are asleep from the point of physical death to the moment that we awake in eternal 
judgment before the Father is not accurately biblical. There is no such thing as soul sleep in Scripture. Jesus makes it clear at the end of the final judgment, at the close of the age, there is an eternal conscious existence, either in reward of heaven or torment in hell. This parable of the separation of the good fish and the bad fish speaks truth. It speaks truth to the souls of all of humanity, that the lost souls within humankind has a destiny. Neither you nor I define that destiny. I want to make that very clear. You and I do not define that destiny. God does. It's through Christ, His Son, and Christ alone that we have a hope for eternal life in the kingdom. It's also through Christ and Christ alone that some have eternal punishment outside of the kingdom. It's both. It's clear that lives can be altered here and now. Anyone who argues against that, I would love to sit and have a conversation with you. Yes, I am a firm believer that God predestines all things. But at the same time, there is in Scripture lives being altered. Both work. Both work. While God is still sovereign over it all. Can you imagine a God who is sovereign even over the altering of people's lives? Otherwise, God in the very beginning before all things began would say, okay, I'm going to create you for salvation. I'm going to create you for damnation. Now, He can do that too. Yet the biblical principle is this. Change do, lives do change. Lives do alter. While at the same time, God is in control over all outcomes. Blows my mind. The human mind will limit God in saying that He cannot change things. He can. Now, God is unchangeable in His nature. He never changes Himself. Yet He does alter human lives. Now, that'll blow your mind if you try to reconcile that. That's why I have faith in my Lord. Thank you for knowing things that I can't even grasp. Amen? It's clear that lives can be altered here and now. Yet, it's also clear in this parable, at the close of the age, there will be no more change of the soul. There will be no more altering of lives when the dragnet is full and the angels separate out the good from the bad. At that point, it's too late. The life will not change. The soul will not alter. Period. These parables teach truth. These parables of judgment, they are intended to wake us up, but they're also encouragement for the saved. The nature of Jesus the Son as judge, He judges eternal destinies for all souls that are caught up in this great dragnet that we call the kingdom of heaven. Think about the kingdom of heaven as a dragnet now that gathers up everything. Now, that's beyond me, too. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank You for this Word. We thank You for the truth that Your Son is teaching us. I thank You for the the loving message that Jesus is teaching here about final judgment. There will be a separation of the evil apart from the good. The evil that is caught up in the dragnet will be purged and separated from the righteous. And Lord, I pray that only through your grace you could change a soul to where they are not in that pile of fish that is rotten and corrupt. Lord, I pray that you would always, in your mercy, cause us to be merciful to others as an act of showing our our gratitude to you for your salvation of us. Lord, in the final days, that close of the age, when we stand before you, I pray that you would prepare us even now for that moment. And prepare us to rem- and remind us, God, of where our salvation comes. Lord, I pray that as we, we come to the table of communion here in a minute, that you would speak into the hearts of all who are here, that you would speak into the hearts of all who are listening to this now. That your holy presence, your very real Holy Spirit would alter the lives of anyone who's hearing this. Lord, this is, this moment is for you. And I ask God that you would move as you move. In Jesus' name, amen.